I think part of the Sabbath is to recognize what you've been working so hard on over the previous six days and pause to recognize how good it is so that you can even pivot to make it even better on day eight. Hello and welcome to The Daily Helping with Dr. Richard Schuster. Food for the brain, knowledge from the experts, tools to win at life. I'm your host, Dr. Richard. Whoever you are, wherever you're from, and whatever you do, this is the show that is going to help you become the best version of yourself. Each episode, you will hear from some of the most amazing, talented, and successful people on the planet who followed their passions and strive to help others. Join our movement to get a million people each day to commit acts of kindness for others. Together, we're going to make the world a better place. Are you ready? Because it's time for your daily helping. Thanks for tuning into this very special episode of the Daily Helping Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard, and it is an honor to bring today's guest to you back to the Daily Helping. If you missed his first unbelievable episode, that was the 75th episode of the show. You can find that, of course, in Apple Podcasts and wherever else you like to listen to the show. But we're talking today to John O'Leary, international bestselling author. He has a top 10 podcast. He helps people live an amazing, inspired life. And what we're going to talk about today is going to not only be timely because of what's going on in the world, but he's got a new book coming out that is absolutely phenomenal and you need to read it. John O'Leary, welcome back to The Daily Helping. What a great honor to have you on our show again. Dr. Richard, you look great. It's great to hear your voice. I love your work, so I'm honored to be a, a part of it today. I feel like, uh, you know, I, I'm thinking about the Saturday Night Live skit where they did with Justin Timberlake and a whole bunch of people that, you know, they got smoking jackets for coming on Saturday Night Live five times. And Steve Martin got one. I think we're working our way towards that with you. I know you don't I know you don't smoke, but, but we'll have to get you the jacket. But uh, man, this is going to be a great discussion because there's so much pain, fear, and uncertainty in the world. And, and you are one of the top thought leaders and influencers who helps people overcome pain, fear, and uncertainty through the work that you're doing. I, I don't want to you know, spend a bunch of time talking about you know, your origin story because we did it in the last episode, but I, I want to really talk about, you, know, you had your book and your book was an absolute smash hit. And now you've got In Awe, Talk to us about why you decided to write In Awe, and, and let's okay. jump in there. So the origin story for those who don't want to go back to uh, episode 75, in, in short, is little John O'Leary at age nine got burned on 100% of his body, which is a death sentence, as you know, Dr. Richard. So I'm, I'm, I'm not supposed to be here, and yet here we are on your show doing this podcast, Living Life Large blessed beyond measure to, to be in the room, man. So th that's part of the story, long recovery, and then moving on in life as if nothing had happened. No fingers on my hands, but I acted like nothing had happened. Scars over my entire body, but I acted like nothing had happened to me. And then my mom and dad wrote a short little story about their experience having their son burned. It changed not only their lives in writing that book, but it changed mine. I started to embrace the story, started to share the story at age 28. And, uh, found my calling. So I started with a group of three Girl Scouts. That's audience number one. The second group was uh, eight Rotarians and then about 30 Qantas members. So in one year, I spoke three times for $0, but we were living mission. 
And uh, we've been living mission ever since. Over the last 15 years, have spoken in 50 states, 19 countries, a couple million people live, sharing a story of hope and perspective. So that's the origin story. What has it led to then? Well, when I would speak to audiences, I would frequently speak to large conferences, ask questions, and have three hands out of a thousand people elevate to answer a question. And I would have them turn to a neighbor, but they wouldn't really want to turn to a neighbor. So I'd have to twist their arms a little bit. And the audiences were great. They were engaged, but they weren't fired up for life. And then I would leave the stadiums, go into the schoolhouses, speak to first graders, and ask a question. And every single hand in the entire first grade class would go up. And I would have them turn to to the neighbor. And before I even finished, turn to your neighbor, they were already turning. The cool thing about kids is they are hyper-engaged in the day. They are unabashedly willing to ask questions. They are willing to wonder, where are your fingers? But they don't say to be rude. They say because they don't understand it or they want to know a little bit more. And we adults stop asking questions. We start building fences. We build taller walls. And we stop dreaming that the best days remain in front of us. So I wondered one day as I dropped my own kids off at school because they got out of my car, Richard, and they sprinted into the school building. Like these are little kids with backpacks on running in. And I was wondering, what are, what are they running to? And when was the last time I ran anywhere outside of like running away from a dog? When was the last (laughs) time I ran anywhere? These kids run to life. Why is that? And why do we adults stop? And so I wrote a whole book around what is it around the mindset of a child that we had? Why do we lose it and how to return to it? So the book is called In Awe. And uh, in that book, I unpack the five senses that we had as children that we lose as adults. That that is fascinating, and I know you did a lot of research, and there's science, of course, behind this. So, I want to know. Let's let's take a dive, and first, let's talk about what those five senses are that we lose. Yeah. So the first sense, it's probably my favorite, is the sense of wonder. Uh, for those of you listening, or Richard, I know you have them yourself. Kids ask questions all the time, all the time. They uh, they want to know why. It's probably their favorite question. And then you tell them why the sky is blue. And then they follow up with the second profound question, which is why? And they're, well, because of the atmosphere. And then you, they, well, why? Uh, because it, and eventually like, damn it, because I said so. Now go to your schoolwork. Go eat your lunch, Billy. Go to bed. We ask the question why, but our teachers and our parents eventually tell us to stop asking. So we begin to stop asking the question why. And we adults, whether it's regarding the coronavirus or what really matters in your life or why you do what you do, we ought to be at probing the thing. Why? Why do we do life the way we do it? And is there a better way? So that's the first question we ask with wonder, but there are others like, who says? You know, really, who says it has to be this way? Who says? Uh, Why not? Is another phenomenal question. What if? These are all beautiful questions that kids ask naturally that we frequently don't ask. I I think oftentimes those that have designations of, of great effort behind their name, researchers, for instance, can help solve the problems of the world, but they can also become part of the problem because they think they already have all the information. And children remind us we don't. We need to ask. We don't need to end stories with exclamation points in our tweets like we frequently see in the marketplace today. We frequently need to end it with a question mark and how we can do something better together. So that's the sense of wonder. I think it's awesome. I think kids have it. And I think we begin missing out on it a little bit, but we can return to it. And you tell me, if you want to slowly unpack these, we can, or we can bust all the way through all five. Hey guys, Dr. Richard here. 
For the past seven years, I've been privileged to bring you incredible guests who are changing the world and can help you become the best version of yourself. I'm really excited to share with you a new quiz that I created based on my clinical training that will curate for you a custom list of my top episodes and actionable strategies to help you wherever you are on your journey. All you need to do is go to drrichardschuster.com to take it, and it's 100% free. You'll be taking the next step on the journey to unlocking the power of you, and I can't wait to see where you'll go. Oh, I'd love to go a little bit deeper into this because it is true. You know, there's a sense of, and I see it in my own children, there's a just a really overwhelming sense of curiosity for everything, for everything. Yeah, right. And you're right. And by the time we get to be adults, for most of us, we've lost that. So let's take a deeper dive into that. When Have you found the research in terms of when, right. is there a threshold when that starts to go away and then when you stop it, asking? It starts pivoting around the school age, so around five and six. It's when you okay. begin asking fewer questions. There's a couple of reasons for it. Not to put the blame on parents and teachers, but we have to own our piece of it. When children who are naturally inquisitive ask questions, eventually you really do tell them to stop doing this. There, there is one answer to the question on the test. There's one answer. And they recognize that those who answer that question the right way are the ones celebrated. They are the ones that get the gold star. They are the ones that move into the next class. They're the ones that we, we, we hold up high at the dinner table. So we are encouraged socially to stop raising our hands and asking why. Really risky. The second reason, more of a brain issue, is we learn quickly, the brain, to stop doing effort around probing outside the box. It takes a lot of effort, actually, to think outside the lane that we are currently running in. And so we quickly see something like um, be, run from, fruit, eat. And we quickly recognize, well, that's what we do in the situation, which is really healthy for the fight, flight, or, or fight move. But it's also not very healthy when we see something like the coronavirus spreading across the country to think that there's one solution to it, to uh, have a relationship that's not going very healthily at home. I think that there's, there's only one path forward to see something broken in the community and think that there's only one solution to it. So one of the things that's very healthy is to ask ourselves, what if we saw it through a completely different lens? And the best way to do that is to ask, what if? In September 12th of 1963, we had a president named Kennedy who in Rice University stood before 40,000 people and said, by the end of the decade, we will go to the moon and return safely. What people fail to recognize these days is the shuttle had not even been invented. Many of the alloys that went into the program, that the, the, the skeleton of the ship, weren't even invented. The computer system that would take them up there and back safely weren't even invented. This was an audacious dream. And yet he put the dream out there and said, go. Together, we're going to figure it out. What, what, it, what if we saw it through a completely different lens? And as you know, by 1969, we are hearing that's one small step for man. It became a reality not by having the information or a period or an explanation point by it, but ultimately by finishing sentence with question marks. And that, that I think is the way we make our greatest leaps in life. It's finally the final point around this. Everything that is invented today, including the program that you and I are currently using to see each other, wasn't invented at some point. So everything, including the cure for the coronavirus, that currently seems impossible at one point in life was in fact seemingly impossible a bridge across the Mississippi River, a flight across the Atlantic Ocean, a boat that would take you from Europe to the New World. It was all impossible. All of it's always impossible until someone has the audacity to look at the horizon and say, what if? What if? 
And so uh, I, I would just encourage all of our listeners, that you, as you look at social issues or personal ones, rather than to sulk and cross your arms and look down and have a pity party, that's one way to handle it. It's very popular these days to look up, uncross your arms, be a child again, and end your thought with a question mark, and then take a step toward it. I absolutely love that. So that was wonder, which was number one. You've got me super excited. I can't wait to hear what what two is. (laughs) (laughs) Well, two, and I'll I'll tell you what it is in a moment, but it began with my son, Patrick. If if our eyes are open to it, we can learn a lot on life from our kids, whether they're your kids or your nephews, nieces, neighbors, or you teach them. So Patrick, three years ago, gets in my car. Every single year, I, I, I do speeches, and they get to choose where they go with their daddy, and they plan the entire trip. So they plan whether we drive or we fly. They plan the hotel we stay in. They plan what we do when we're there. And so Patrick chose Kansas City, which is about a two and a half hour drive from home. So perfect, really convenient. Another reason he chose it is the St. Louis Cardinals. That's our home team. We're playing the Kansas City Royals. So Patrick and I go. As he walks out to my car, though, he's got a glove on his left hand, Richard. So it's summertime in St. Louis. It's extraordinarily hot. I know he's going to lose the stupid thing. And so I say, Patrick, cute idea. Leave the glove at home. And he says to me, Daddy, we're going to need it. I'm like, no, you're not going to need a glove. There's 52,000 other people that might need a glove. You're not one of them. Long story may very short. He brings the glove. He wears it for the three-hour drive. He wears it through the walk into the stadium. He wears it during batting practice, wears it through the first seven innings. And in the first part of the eighth inning, there's a smash down the left field line. I duck because I know where this ball is going right at us. Patrick stands, lifts his left hand high, and boom. The ball goes right into his glove. He looks over at me with this massive smile (laughs) on his eyes. And I'm like, oh my gosh. So I did a little bit of research that night before we went to bed. The chance of catching a ball at a a game like this is less than one in a thousand. So I remember going to bed that night thinking, man, that kid is lucky. But but there's a quote around luck. Um, Luck is what shallow people call preparation. Luck is what shallow people call preparation. I love that. It's really important. Like luck... So the following year, this is all a true story. You can ask my son. Kids don't lie. The following year, we go to Pittsburgh. That is a 10-hour drive. He comes out of, the, out of the house into my car, and he's got a glove on. I'm not going to waste your time and your listeners' time with the story. We are in top. We're high up in the right field section. Patrick's got his glove on. Home run goes over our head. It's hit by a Pirates player. They're killing us now. Some big old Pirates fan catches it. A couple of moments later, I hear a guy yell, Hey, kid. Patrick looks to his right and the guy yells, if you can catch this, you can go home with this ball. I want you to go home with something besides a Cardinals loss. (laughs) He tosses this ball. Patrick's got his glove on. He catches the ball. Boom. Lucky kid is what I'm thinking. But it's not luck, really. It's preparation. It's expectancy. And you as a a doctor, you understand this. There, there is something called the placebo effect and the nocebo effect. Mm-hmm. And the weird thing about this for medicine is it's becoming harder and harder and harder, harder for the pharmacist and, and those who are creating medicine to predict what's going to happen after they release a drug because both patients, both that receive the sugar pill and those that receive the actual pill see benefits. They both see benefits to receiving the pills, whether they receive the actual pill or the fake pill, because you believe in your heart of hearts that you're going to get better. And what happens then is you actually begin to get better. Hope is, in fact, a strategy going forward. It actually does make a difference. Our thoughts become realities. This isn't the secret, okay? This is not just the secret. Shut your eyes and hope that life is going to change and it's going to change. I don't think so. 
But if you start hoping that tomorrow is going to be better than today, you might work out. You might eat differently. You might connect with your friends. You might start praying again. You might start reflecting again. And then it becomes a reality itself. And so what Patrick was proving to me was something that kids do naturally. It is called expectancy. They think today is going to be awesome. And they're right. They think the trip to the grocery store is freaking awesome. It's first experience living. Every experience they have as children is the first time they've ever experienced it. A trip up the escalator blows their mind. (laughs) It's a magic carpet elevating a whole flight of steps and they're not even moving their little legs. And we we as adults are bored. We kind of lean against it. We have germs now on our elbows, but we do this. And what happens though, when they bring this into third world countries, there's some cool videos out of uh, when they bring it into Africa or India, you see adults with pure joy on their faces, riding escalators up the malls. And after they get to the top, they ride it down. They get to the bottom, they do it again. Because for them, it's, a, it's unbelievable. It fills them with awe. And my friends, that's one way to go through life. It's going to change the experience, which is going to change your life. As you were describing Patrick, I was reflecting that I, I see that in my own children every day. And you're right. It, it's, there, there is a difference between going through life in the mundane, I've got to go to work, I've got to drop them off at school, but rather, you know, if there's an expectancy right. that something incredible is going to happen or, you know, or to, you know, even take that in a different way to be reflective of how lucky we are to have the things in our lives, it can reframe. I mean, you're, you're talking about, you know, scientific techniques. You're talking, you know, from a therapeutic standpoint, we, re- we refer to this as cognitive reframing, where we take a right. look at one circumstance and we look at it from some, something different. And there has been a ton of research, particularly in the peak performance and sports world. They've taken people uh, they've taken basketball teams and one basketball team would actually close their eyes and expect free throws to go in. And then the other team wouldn't do that. And the, the team were generally the, their equivalent in terms of physical talent. Repeatedly, the team right. that saw themselves nailing those free throws had a far greater conversion rate on attempts than the teams that didn't. So there is a ton of science behind what you're saying. And I love the way you framed it. What you're referring to there is a study out of Stanford. We almost included that in the book. So you and I are on the same page. It really does influence what happens next. And we don't take the time right now as we are all homebound. Netflix has never been happier and Amazon has never made more money because people are drowning their sorrows in liquor and in mundane. We're watching someone else's life unfold in front of us through a sitcom or through a whole lot of other shows that we are streaming into our consciousness rather than shutting our eyes, recognize how beautiful in spite of the adversity. Guys, like I, I get it too. I really do. I understand. I've been through some struggles and I'm knee deep in one right now, but I also understand the miracle of life. Kids do naturally. We begin to lose that as we endure the mundane. And what I encourage you to do today is to keep the television off. Watch the sun set. Be in awe of the cloud formations going on over your head. The likelihood of you being there, there's some research around this with your mother's 200,000 eggs and your father's several hundred billion sperm, the likelihood of you being here is less than one in 400 trillion. So I know I'm a miracle because I should not have survived the fire. That's one way to look at it. But the other piece of it is I should not be alive, period. And neither should you, Richard, and neither should any one of your listeners. Kids go through life recognizing that. They don't understand the science. They just realize, damn, this is cool. This is really a gift. That sunflower is gorgeous. The tree blossom in my backyard blows my mind. When was the last time you took time to watch a magnolia tree open up in front of you? 
Spring gives us that opportunity. Being home away from work gives us that opportunity. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Well said. So well said. So we are just knocking them out of the park here. We've got wonder and we've got hope. John, what's next? So I call it immersion. So when when kids, whatever they're doing, they are knee deep in it. They they are laser focused on whatever that activity is. And we adults uh, are hyper-focused on multitasking, which all research says is actually completely ineffective. You can't, as a human, you cannot do two things at the same time we think we can. It's actually exhausting. And uh, they say you're better off smoking weed while working. Or <laughs> I'm serious, smoking weed while working than multitasking or sleeping less than two hours a night and then working. So that, that's how effective you are when you're trying to multitask. Kids have a different strategy. We call it the bell ring. So here's what kids do. When the bell rings, homeroom starts. And they're, they're looking down at their little sheets. And then the bell rings again, recess. It's time to go out and play. So then they play like it's madness. And my office is right across from a little school caddy corner. I hear it all day long. I love it. Kids are playing. But then you hear the bell ring and the laughter disappears for a moment. They go down the hallway. They sit down in the class. Science time. And they're focused on science. And then the bell rings. Lunch time. Then they go back. Now it's rest time. We adults don't, man. We, we go through life exhausted because we're multitasking. We do none of it very well. And we're beat down by the end of the day. So what I would encourage us to do, and this is a great season to actually practice this, is do one task at a time. When you're working, work like a dog. When you play, play like a puppy. And then take time to rest. There's a, a lot of research around Sabbath. So for those of you who have a faith background, you know what that word means, but it, it means like a profound rest. So our Jewish brothers and sisters have a whole day of Sabbath. Many of the Christians celebrate a whole day of Sabbath. When was the last time we really took Sabbath for ourselves? God rested. And I think God rested, and some of us believe this, not only to take a break. I'm not sure God needed a break. I'm pretty sure God could have boldly moved into, the, into day seven. I think part of the Sabbath is to recognize what you've been working so hard on over the previous six days and, to, and pause to recognize how good it is so that you can even pivot to make it even better on day eight. So uh, the, the play, work, pause is an incredibly important way to go through life. Kids understand this. We lose sight of it. And so uh, this season of being homebound gives us an opportunity. When you're in front of the laptop, man, really work. But then take time to walk the streets. Take time to look at nature. Take time to play. Get a workout in. Sit under a tree and just look up and watch the clouds go by. Kids teach us this. We can learn from that. Yeah, that resonates so strong, strongly with me, John. Actually, my, some, my kids, like pretty much every kid in the country right now, we're being homeschooled uh, yeah. through distance learning. And one of the activities that they had to do was go on a nature walk and find certain things. They had to find a squirrel, they had to find a worm, they had to find a, a bird. And so, you know, my wife and I took our kids out and we were the only ones in our neighborhood walking. And we're just going around and they're turning, uh, they're looking in leaf piles and they're you know looking under rocks and like they found the worm. And yes. you would have thought that it was like discovering gold and you know, 1849 in California because they went, right we found the worm and they, you know, they just went nuts. And so I get that, right? Like it makes what you're saying makes so much sense. Immersion, really put yourself mm. into that one thing. And, and I say one thing, I, as you were describing this, I was thinking about one of my favorite books, aside from yours, uh, it was the Jay Papasan and Gary Keller book, The One Thing. And they spent a lot of time in that book talking about the research that 
multitasking is an absolute myth. And if you really focus yourself on the one activity, you're going to be wildly more productive. No, no, no. Now, I, I, had, I didn't hear the smoking weed thing until you just mentioned it. And it Enjoy it. Try, try it out. <laughs> <laughs> try this. All right. Here, here's your uh... homework assignment. Find a neighbor you know to be cool, borrow the goods, right. and make them see how effective you are when you're working. Make sure it's not laced with anything, right? <laughs> but uh, my goodness, well, no, it, well. it's so interesting and it makes total sense though. One more piece on immersion is there's a whole lot of research on what's now called forest bathing. And we who are homebound, like your kids and you are, have an opportunity to go into nature. And it is incredibly therapeutic to walk outside, to find a worm, to go onto the next rock, to see the squirrel, to look up at the magnolia tree. It's healing. It reduces stress. It reduces anxiety. It reduces depression. Last year in our country, when the market was killing it, all-time highs, unemployment at all-time lows, 1.5 million Americans, Richard, attempted suicide. During the best of days, man, we were right with suicide thoughts, with anxiety, with depression, feelings of isolation. And my great concern is what is it going to be this year? What, what is it going to be now that we truly are seemingly isolated, that we truly are dealing with a lot of financial stress, that we truly are feeling completely cut off from our brothers and sisters? And how do we redeem the situation? So uh, I think this, this time will either be incredibly painful for the majority of us or we can pivot in like a child would. I, I was outside yesterday. It's 40, I'm sorry, 53 degrees yesterday in St. Louis. I'm stressed a little bit about work and some of the cash flow issues that many of us are dealing with. And I look outside of my neighbors. They have two twins. They're nine. And they're in the front yard. It's 56 degrees. They have their swimsuits on and they are running through the freaking sprinkler. Okay. So like they are playing. They're probably going to get sick but they are <laughs> they're going to go inside, take a hot shower, get their clothes back on and work because they're being homeschooled. But there's something beautiful about being where you are when you're there. And kids model this perfectly and they have a lot to teach us around immersion. It's, I just had this, this Midwestern moment as you were describing that. And I, I live in Atlanta now, but I grew up in Detroit. And I do remember, it is this perspective too. I remember, you know, when it would break 40 degrees for the first time, everybody's outside in shorts. And I would describe that to my very Southern wife. And she would you know, think that those people would need to be committed. But again, it, it, it goes back to getting excited, immersing yourself in something fun you know, those, those kids probably had the time of their life, even though, you know, many, many of the people south of the Mason-Dixon line would find that to be an absurd activity right. based on temperature. So, you know, perspective matters so much, but I, I do love the example. 